Welcome to the Young Businessmen of Tulsa podcast. At the Young Businessmen of Tulsa, our mission is focused on connecting, developing, and inspiring young business leaders to find and pursue their purpose. This podcast is sponsored by Trost Marketing. Promoting your business through marketing is essential for growth. Without marketing, you lack the ability to create a conversation with your potential customers. At Trost Marketing, we provide marketing solutions that fuel growth. We are your source for all of your printing needs, as well as branded apparel and promotional items. If your business wants to stand out to potential customers, contact the marketing experts at Trost Marketing. Visit us at trostmarketing.com or call us at 866-492-7820. Young businessmen, welcome to the Young Businessmen of Tulsa podcast. I'm your host, Evan Uitake. I want to welcome you to a bonus podcast from our March luncheon featuring Gary Richardson. Gary Richardson is an Oklahoma native and has served as the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Oklahoma, is the founding attorney of Richardson Richardson Boudreau, and has a proven track record of helping people eliminate the destructive power of fear in their lives. Today he shares his story and how a life directed by God will help you in all aspects of your life. Let's join Gary and listen to his message to young business leaders. Thank you very much, and it's good to be here. And um, I want to start out by making this statement because it truly is the core of my life. All that I am, all that I ever have been, and all that I ever will be, I owe it to Him. And I mean that. I've lived my life that way. First experience I had with faith was. I was a 15-year-old boy on the cotton farm in South Texas. I was born in Caddo, but at the age of nine, we moved to South Texas. My dad only went through the third grade, and he was a cotton sharecropper. And I was driving a tractor. This, I was about 14 and cutting cotton stalks. My dad back then thought if you're 14, you're supposed to be a man and work like a man. <laughs> so uh, we did. And I'm driving down through there cutting cotton stalks and we were going to church camp the next week and I said God there's a there's a girl up the valley named Ruth Ann Lookingbill that I'd met at uh, some church event I said if Ruth Ann's going to go with me to the banquet at the end of next week uh, church camp I'd like to see a blackbird fly between these rows of stalks before I get to the end of the stalks now as a young boy, I felt that was appropriate. Today, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but as a young boy, that was where my faith was, right? Before I got to the end of the stalks, what I thought to be the largest blackbird I'd ever seen in my life went right up through those cotton stalks, right up through the row of cotton. I knew then Ruthann was going with me, even though my cousin, who was a year older than I was, and she was a year older than I was, also liked Ruthann. He didn't know I liked her, but I knew he did. So we go to camp. I didn't, I didn't uh, get in a hurry to ask Ruthann. As a matter of fact, I waited till Wednesday because I knew the answer. So I asked her to go with me to the banquet. She said, "Well, Gary, I'd love to, but Herb has already asked me, and I told him I would go with him. That was my cousin." My friends, I walked away that day saying, boy, are they in for a real surprise. I believed that with every fiber within me. Friday afternoon, I didn't ask for anyone for a date. Friday afternoon, I'm playing ping pong with a guy, and uh, I see Ruth Ann come walking into the rec center. I knew exactly what she wanted. She came over. She said, do you have a date tonight? And I said, no. And she said, well, I'm not going with her, but I'd be glad to go with you. 
My friends, it's things like that that builds our faith. Knowing that we can trust Him with our lives every day, every moment of our lives. Also as a young man, back in the 60s, I heard a minister say, the book of Proverbs was the book of knowledge and wisdom. I recorded the entire book of Proverbs on CDs back in 68 and listened to it every day, going to work and going home for weeks. A lot of what I stand on today is because of what I heard and read in the book of Proverbs. It says there to pray daily for knowledge and wisdom. I would say that that's been my number one prayer throughout my lifetime. God, just give me knowledge. Give me wisdom. I prayed for that consistently. My background is uh, also, in addition to being assistant insurance commissioner and, uh, and uh, assistant state prosecutor in Muskogee and U.S. attorney appointed by President Ronald Reagan, I was in the insurance business. But as a kid growing up, I sold everything you could sell. We lived out in the country, and I'd get on my bicycle and ride around the countryside selling Christmas cards. A clover saw a kind of salve. You remember that salve back then? And nap shoes. I didn't have shoes because you never could wear them out. <laughs> they just kept going. But anyway, and uh, I became sales manager in, in uh, Houston of an insurance company at the age of 28. A new, a new, they were starting up a new operation in Houston, Preferred Risk Life, a non-drinkers company. Any of you heard of it? Preferred Risk Life? No. <laughs> well, I started there at the age of 28. I was the youngest sales manager they had ever hired. And uh, I also had a wife and three children. Went to law school, carrying 12 hours. At the end of four, four years, or at, yeah, end of four years, we were number five in the entire nation and number one in a 17-state region. You know, I spoke to a group of CEOs a couple of years ago, and I started out by asking this question. How many men in the room, and it, it was all men, can raise your hand saying, I like everything about myself. I said, I don't see any hands raised, and you sure don't see mine. Anybody in this room can raise your hand saying, I like everything about myself? Then we talked about what we do about those things we don't like about ourselves. I contend that until we're willing to get to know ourselves, we will never really know anyone else. We will never know anyone any better than we know ourselves. For example, you're greedy and you know it. Someone accuses you of being greedy. You'll debate them. You know, you'll defend it. Instead of saying, you know, you're right. I am greedy. And I hate it. I've hated it every day of my life. And I've tried to get better. I'm not as bad as I was yesterday, but I hope to be better tomorrow. Once we come to that place, then we can become real leaders. But until we're hiding things in our lives that we don't like, everybody else knows it anyway, right? <laughs> so we're not really hiding it, we just think we're hiding it. I retired in 1956 at a three-story home on a golf course in Colorado, Arrowhead. We went there to live. I played golf every day. One day I stopped and I looked up and I said, God, is this really all there is to life? And the answer I got was no. 
I came back home, went back into the practice of law, and said I will never retire again. I will be working the day I die. It's just not in me. So the things I don't like, I used to think I was really a, uh, uh, you know, a, a worker that was just very conscientious. But I had to come to realize I'm a workaholic. Any workaholics in the room? <laughs> I had to come to realize it and accept it, that I was a workaholic. Whatever I do, I give it everything I have. And so, you know, the, in the practice of law, we started to practice here in 1984 after I left the U.S. Attorney's Office. And uh, lawyers would say to me, Gary, you can't, you can't uh, build a law firm without taking on uh, corporate work. I said, we will. We have today probably, I don't know of any other law firm in the state that represents the people, not corporations, but the people, that uh, has the size of the law firm we have. As a lawyer, I've been blessed in many ways. And I've told the lawyers, that I, as I teach lawyers around the state uh, and around the country on occasion, if you're in this business for the money, you will burn out. If you have a passion to help people, you will never burn out. Whatever we're in, that's what I say. If you have the right motivation, being there to do what you're doing, and a passion. I tell people I hate corruption with a passion, and I do. When there's corruption, innocent people are being harmed. Amen? Amen. I hate it with a passion. So I came back and went back to work. The first time Don Nichols came to me and asked me to be the U.S. Attorney, I turned it down. I wasn't looking for a position. I've never looked for a position. I just go where I feel drawn to go. I turned it down, and uh, the second time he came, I turned it down. It paid half of what I was making. I had a wife and three children. My wife didn't work. The third time he came, he said, Gary, we really need you to take this job to handle the county commissioner scandal. I said, I'll take it. That's one of the things about myself that has really driven me through the years. I'm driven by challenge. Anyone else in the room driven by challenges? The bigger the challenge, the more I'm driven. <laughs> and uh, I didn't ask to be that way. You know, Chris, I didn't ask God to make me that way. He made me the way he wanted me to use me for the purpose for he, which he wanted to use me. And that's true in all your lives. That's true in all of our lives. I've written four books. The first one I wrote, Fear is Never Your Friend. Why did I write this? As a kid, I had so much fear. I was full of fear. We lived out on the cotton farm. I had a twin sister. There was nights that I would get up out of bed and go down and lay by the door to my parents' bedroom. I hated it. I hated fear. So I decided to make it a subject of a study. And I did. That's where this book came from. I've given seminars on fear is never your friend that lasts up to four hours. Some that last an hour. You know, you, you, it's pretty simple when you just get to the bottom of it, but it's more in, interesting when you just get to the entire message. When I was writing the book, I was talking to my banker, and, and uh, I mentioned I was writing a book, and she asked me what it was, and I said, fear is never your friend. 
And by look on her face, I said, uh, Sue, you don't agree with that, do you? She said, well, not really. I said, tell me why. She said, well, if, I'm seeing, if I see a snake curled up on the floor in a position to strike, and I'm within striking the distance, I, she said, uh, I think my fear will help me get myself to safety. I said, what do you think a two-year-old baby crawling on the floor would do if they saw the same snake? Go to the snake, right? What do you have that the two-year-old baby doesn't have? You have knowledge and you have wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom is what keeps me from running out in front of a truck, not fear. Fear is never our friend. Read the scriptures. You'll find that. That's where I found it. Fear is never our friend. Only the reverential fear of our almighty God. Right after I wrote this book, I got a call from uh, the publisher who said there's uh, a person writing a book titled Conversations on Faith. And because of the faith that you see in the book, which fear is never your friend, they want to know if I would write a chapter. So I did. Uh, I'm in here with Robert Schuler. <laughs> you ever know Robert Schuler? There's some pretty important people, important people in here. I, I don't know how I got in here, but uh, it lists me as a motivational speaker, a trainer, and a coach. And I did use, I at one time was in the motivational business until I heard an outstanding motivator speak. And I said, wow, I can't do this. I cannot get up and motivate people to do things I know they can't do. <laughs> a great motivational speaker has to be only concerned about the ones that can do what they motivate them to do. You got a hundred people in the room and you motivate a hundred people that they can go out and fly an airplane knowing 85 90 percent of them can't. They'll crash and burn. But a great motivational speaker aren't concerned about the 85 percent. They're only concerned about the 15 percent. They can do it. I decided that evening I can never be a great motivational speaker because I cannot do that. I will not do that. So I never gave another motivational speak. I uh, went my separate way. It's kind of hard after giving a different type of talk for about a year to stay on track, but I'm doing my best. Luke 18, 17 talks about having a childlike faith. I have a group of men that we meet every Monday morning. We have since 1996 when I came back from Colorado and decided that I would never retire again. We met every Monday morning for right at 20 years, 20 years, 22 years really, except for holidays. We met this morning. We meet at 7.30 to 8.30. And right now we're studying the book of Job. And we agreed this morning that if you even try to make sense of what God does in some people's life, you'll never understand it, right? We're talking about Noah. Can you imagine Noah going out, building this big ark in the middle of a dry field? No water. He's building an ark. God told him to. A friend told me many years ago, Gary, if you live your life, a life that's directed by God. The world will not understand you. The world will not understand you. If we have to have people's approval, that's a problem. Amen? 
only his approval really is what's important. It's his approval. The second book I wrote is called Black Robe Fever. This book is about, um, the thrust of it is, all cowards seek positions of power because the more power they have, the more safe they feel. You know someone like that? And when a coward gets power, they will become a bully. You know someone like that? Well, I've met some judges like that in trying cases. And I name them in here. Yeah. But lawyers say, you're crazy. You know, and I said, there's no judge that will read this and think it's talking about them. <laughs> It'll be that other person is talking about. One case, I had a client, he was a district attorney in Waco. He was in the process of pulling a grand jury to indict eight law enforcement people. The head of the Texas Rangers, a sheriff, two deputy sheriffs, two Texas Rangers, and two FBI agents. They found out about it. Guess who got up getting indicted? The district attorney on fraudulent charges. No question. He called me to defend him. He had second chaired me in a couple of cases in years past. He called me to defend him. They were retaliating against him because he was going to indict them. And it had to do with the Henry Lee Lucas matter. Any of you know Henry Lee Lucas? Remember the name? The alleged mass murderer of all times. Henry was housed in Georgetown, and he was solving unresolved murder cases all over the country. For example, if a detective in Tulsa called down the sheriff at Georgetown and says, could you talk to Henry, see if maybe he was in Tulsa on about a certain date, and maybe could have committed this murder. The sheriff would say, send your file down, we'll review it, and we'll interview Henry. They'd send the file down, they'd put the file in the room, put Henry in the room with the file, Henry would study the file, they'd call back and say, Henry said he did it, come on down and interview him. Solving unresolved murder cases all over this country. So the judge called us in, the federal judge in Austin, Texas, called us into his office the week before trial and looked at me and said, Mr. Richardson, this jurisdiction does not recognize retaliation as a defense. I do not want to hear the name Henry Lucas one time during this trial. Do you understand me? I said, I do. We left, of course, fixed beside himself because I told him the only way we can win this case is convince a jury. These eight law enforcement people, including two FBI agents, put together a fraudulent set of facts because of retaliation. We go to trial. Well, Vic was beside himself. He said, what are we going to do? I said, what do you mean? He said, he took our defense away from us. I said, how do you do that? He said, he said, we can't talk about Lucas. I said, Vic, he may wear a black robe and he may be a federal judge, but he doesn't have the authority to tell me how to defend a criminal case. Now, my friends, I respect authority as long as it stays within its boundaries. He was outside of his boundaries, right? He didn't have the authority to tell me how to defend a criminal case. If he had him, I would respect him. He said, so what are you going to do? I said, what do you think I'm going to do? Are you going to talk about Henry? You bet I'm going to talk about Henry. I said, Vic, what makes more sense to you? You're going to penitentiary for 84 years for something you didn't do. Or me going to jail for six months for contempt of court. And he said, and you're willing to do that. I said, you bet I'm willing to do that. You bet I'm willing to do that.
My protector is him. Amen? I live by that. I will die by that. He is my protector. We go to trial. In opening statement, I'm talking about Henry Lucas. <laughs> the judge called us up. I could tell he thought I didn't really understand him or if I had, I'd forgotten. I never argued with him. Yes, sir, I understand him. First witness, I'm talking about Henry Lucas. <laughs> Long story short, I was held in contempt of court by this federal judge in Austin, Texas, eight times the first week. He was very, very angry at me. The only thing I ever said to him was this. Once I did say, Judge, Judge, would you mind looking at the prosecutor every once in a while when you're chewing on me so that jury won't think I'm the only one you're upset with? <laughs> he didn't think that's too funny. <laughs> well, anyway, on Friday afternoon, he calls me up to his bench and he tells me not to leave courthouse when we're through for the afternoon because I will be spending the weekends in his hotel if I understood what he meant. I said, Judge, I totally understand what you mean. And I think you know by now, there's nothing you can do to intimidate me and to not seem to it that my client gets what he's entitled to. I'm willing to pay that price, whatever it might be. I said, but Judge, if you do, put me in your hotel. Uh, and if my client's convicted, it will be reversed. You know that, I know that, because I won't be in a proper frame of mind come Monday morning. So Judge, I'd like to recommend this. I'd like to recommend that you just call a mistrial and go ahead and put me in jail for six months. And folks, I was ready to go. Or Judge, leave me alone. You're wasting a lot of good time. He sat there and he said, I'll see you man Monday morning. He never said another word to me. Six week trial. My friend and client, Vic Fazell, walked out of the courtroom a free man. A free man. The judge had said a word to me when the verdict came back. He went through the back door to his chambers. I went through security and went to his chambers. As a man of God, you don't fear any man, right? Scripture tells us that. Fear no man. Doesn't mean not to be respectful, right? But fear no man. No man. Fear only him that can take your life when he allows it. We all have a day. And we aren't going before that day. Amen? And it's his decision. He's the author. When I was going to be a U.S. attorney, word was going around town I would never be allowed to be the U.S. attorney. I finally secretly recorded the FBI agent that was doing my report because I concluded he was turning in an illegitimate report on me when I heard that if my name went to the committee, I couldn't be confirmed. So I finally talked to the Justice Department into taking other actions. So they sent the, um, the uh, FBI agent back to see me and told me he was coming to talk to me about Gene Stipe and my relationship with Gene Stipe. Any of you know Gene Stipe? Know the name? The Tulsa world called him the Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness. So anyway, the FBI agent came Say he didn't know why he was there. I told him, you're lying. You know why you're here. You're here talking to me about Gene Stein and Bill Hayworth. And uh, long story short, I convinced him we were going to talk about it, whether he was interested in talking about it or not. And we did for an hour and ten minutes. A month later, I get a call from Don Nichols, and he said, Gary, why wouldn't you talk to the FBI agent? I said, is that what he reported? 
He said, I can't tell you what he reported, but why didn't you talk to him? I said, Don, I did talk to him, and I can prove it. Don't ask me how. They finally sent two agents over from outside of Oklahoma City. They knew what the report was. They knew what I said. I had no relationship whatsoever in one way or other with, with Gene Stipe. Gene Stipe did not want me to be the U.S. Attorney. That was his way of making it not happen, is to say he and I were friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The week after the tape was run, a recording, a lawyer in town calls my house one night at 11 o'clock. I was working. My wife tells him I work. He comes to my office and learns to shake. And Gary, you go down tomorrow morning and you turn your name in, withdraw being the U.S. attorney. I said, Mike, what's this about? He said, heck, you know what's about, Gary. They don't have any control over you. They will never let you be the U.S. attorney. I said, Mike, who are they? He said, it doesn't matter. I said, Mike, give them this message. I do not consider myself tough. I don't consider myself mean. But I don't know what the word run means. Tell them, I will come to work the same way every morning. I will go home the same way every night. I will not try to hide. If they stop me, they will have to kill me. And I'm in it. You see, I know who my protector is. Unless it's my time, it wasn't going to happen. Amen? It wasn't going to happen until his, he, he chooses the time. And I had a real peace about doing it. A guy said to me the other day, he said, Gary, I've never been around anyone that seems to have the peace that you have at all times. And I started explaining to him, and my driver came up and said, it's time to leave, we got to go. And he said, I want to get back on this subject again. God, folks, it's the peace of God. Amen? Only he can bring the peace in the midst of the storm. Only he can bring the peace. I used to sing that gospel song. I used to be a gospel singer. I was a lay speaker. And uh, peace in the midst of a storm. You only sing it? No. <laughs> peace in the midst of the storm. We can all have peace when we trust him completely with our lives. Knowing he is the author and the finisher of our lives. Amen? Amen. You know, some people say, well, if I believe that, I just wouldn't do anything. I just lay around. I said, come and follow me and you'll see how everything I do, I think it's all up to me. Knowing all along, it's all up to him. Amen? I work as if it's all up to me. Knowing all along, it's all up to him. That's how I live my life. The third book I wrote is Thank God the Eighth Apple. That does take some explanation, which I don't have time to give. But uh, I will tell you, it's when I changed my doctrinal beliefs from Armenian to Calvinist. I didn't know I was doing that. I was just searching the scriptures. I told my wife, I said, you know, I've got to find something that has more meaning for life in the scriptures and what I've been taught. I spent a year in the scriptures, an average of three hours a day. Totally changed my belief system, and I've been at peace ever since. Amen? The fourth book, I want you to see me. Whatever I bring into your life, or whatever I allow to come into your life, I want you to see me 
using it for your good even if it's cancer. Amen? One Saturday morning, we'd been writing this book for about four years. We'd come up with a number of names. None of them seemed to fit. I was laying in bed, and a name came to my mind that brought great displeasure. And instantly, I got these words. Son, I want you to see me. When you look at I call him Jim. When you look at Jim, I want you to see me. Using him for your good, Romans 8, 28. Whatever I allow to come in your life or bring into your life, I want you to see me using it for your good, even if it's cancer. Those are the words I got that morning. Ten days later, I'm in the hospital, St. Francis. Went to the floor one day. No explanation for it. Rushed to the doctor. Had an IV for four hours. Threw up a lot. Next day went to work. Thursday didn't feel well. Friday went to work. Feeling worse. Saturday couldn't hardly get out of bed. Sunday afternoon I must have been delirious because I'm knocking the wall. Saying to Lana, when are you going to give me some help? She runs me to the hospital. They said if I'd been an hour later, I wouldn't be alive. They did every test they could. I heard them talking about a bone marrow. And I said, God, I know what they're looking for. It's cancer. And God, even if it's cancer, I will see you using it for my good. My friends, if I had to understand that, I couldn't believe it. Amen? It's by faith. It's by faith. Well, it's been great to be with you. I've enjoyed it. And I hope I shared something today that will touch your lives. And uh, just know that the last words I said to you, whatever I am today, whatever I have been, and whatever I become, that's everything. It's all because of him. Thank you very much, and God bless you. Young businessmen, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the young businessmen of Tulsa, check out our website at www.ybtok.com or email us at ybtoklahoma at gmail.com. If you live in the Tulsa area and would like to hear one of our great speakers live at our monthly luncheon, we meet on the second Monday of every month from 12 to 1 p.m. Like us on Facebook for details about locations and upcoming speakers. Lastly, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes and share us with your friends. Thank you for tuning in to the Young Businessmen of Tulsa podcast, where we connect, develop, and inspire young businessmen to find and pursue their purpose.